the red wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. That was William Carlos Williams reading his poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, which lends its name to CCAD's creative writing reading series and to this program, Red Wheelbarrow, the podcast. I'm Robert Loss, Interim Department Head of Writing, Literature, and Philosophy at CCAD, and over the next hour or so, you'll hear our stellar students reading their poems, fiction, nonfiction, and even a bit of a screenplay. Usually, we hold two or three Red Wheelbarrow readings every semester. Each features a handful of student readers and one member of our faculty. And then, normally, at the end of the spring semester, we host a special reading at Chroma, where we celebrate the winners of our annual Creative Writing Awards series and a few of our terrific seniors. But usually and normally are two words that don't apply this year. As a result of the coronavirus pandemic, we've been teaching remotely since March, and we are unable to host a live, in-person Red Wheelbarrow at Chroma. So we've gotten inventive. Thought maybe the best technology for making a podcast. I am recording this on my phone. We've learned to take artistic risks and focus on what really matters. Distanced, we seek out each other's company for insight and courage. What you're about to hear are the words and the voices of the CCAD students who would have read at the live Red Wheelbarrow event. You'll also hear from some of my colleagues, including Professor Sofia Cartsonius, the faculty editor of our literary magazine, Botticelli, which is publishing a brand new issue this spring. Many people helped bring this version of Red Wheelbarrow together, but here at the top, I want to thank the students that you'll hear in this program. When I asked if they'd be willing to record their creative work for a podcast without much prep, without any training, at the end of the semester during all of this, they jumped in feet first. So my deepest thanks to them. And with that, chapter one. The winning entry in the poetry category of the Creative Writing Awards this year is Distant Heavens by Hay Mulholland, a junior in comics and narrative practice who is minoring in creative writing. Of this poem, which is set in the Garden of Eden, Poetry judge Jen Town writes, The language is elevated and romantic, the character of Eve well-developed in relatively few lines, and the poem builds to the last line, which offers a jolt of surprise. Listen for that jolt. Here's Hay Mulholland. Distant Heavens 1. Adam's second wife wanders through her gilded cage, but gilded it was indeed overflowing with verdant life and clusters of fruits in too many colors to count. Despite the verdigree and beauty of the creatures Adam has yet to name, Eve is unhappy. Every night, under the watchful gaze of the moon, she feels something too big to name. Adam's arms wrap around her tightly, holding his gift from God to his chest as if afraid she would run from him. She wanted to. She wants to. She's so lonely. Indigo skies above her and the ever-present feeling of being watched jars her heart and makes her sweat. 
the feeling more than just the sticky kiss of skin against skin against skin, closed days away from being thought of. Lilith. Lilith was Adam's first wife. Instead of being plucked from his chest, made from an insignificant bone from the nexus of his being, Lilith had been drawn from the same soil that birthed him. On nights when Adam's arms are just slightly too tight and the peacocks and the canaries are silent, she thinks of Lilith. Quivering in the cold and quiet, she imagines Lilith's hair, red and fiery. Adam described it as bloody, his tone venomous when she had asked, and, lightly twisting on her own tight curls, she imagines touching it. Would it burn like fire? Or would her hand come away with unreal and ugly, sticky strings of bloody membrane, violent with clotting? Eve knows, in the recesses of her soul, what it would feel like. It would feel dry and smooth, xeric and curly like her own. There, under the stars and trapped by Adam's arms, Eve yearns. And in the morning, when Adam takes her by the arm, and names some striped thing zebra. She does not pay attention. Her mind caught on a fruit as red as Lilith's hair. Two. Zen and serene, the serpent that slithers up to Eve is crimson, with large, luminous yellow eyes that sparkle at her knowingly. It hisses at her, senile, and she smiles at it stroking a long finger down its copper head. When it wriggles its way up her shoulders and nestles in her kinky hair, it blinks at her, vain and proud. Her vacuous smile makes its tongue flick toward her cheek. It grins, unlike any of the other animals in the garden, and she hears a hissing voice toll in her ear. Hello, Eve. Its voice is soft and lilting, sounding amused and generous. Hello, serpent, she replies, tickled giddy by hearing a voice other than Adam's, other than the creator's. Quirking its head, the serpent looks her over, golden eyes piercing, and it hisses a sigh. You are hungry, Eve. Over the hill, she can hear Adam. He is talking to God. She knows because his voice loses the nauseating haughtiness he has when talking to her. She adjusts her feet on the marshy ground and turns her head back towards the thick curve of the looming serpent on her shoulder. I am, she sighs, not quite understanding why her stomach kicks at the admission. Her heart is beating at a rapid pace, jumping in her chest like the grasshoppers and other insects that dot the grounds of Eden like freckles on the shoulder of a red-headed woman. Head, scaled and red, inclines towards the tree that stands proudly in the center of her cage. Gracefully, despite her shaking shoulders, the serpent winds its way down her arm, fitting its face, pointed like an arrow, neatly into her palm as she stumbles on fawn legs to Eden's one and only rule. You are hungry for more than food, Eve. Deadened to the world, Eve cannot hear the whispers, her consternation a palatable and physical being, burrowing in her chest. She takes the fruit as red as the serpent's scales, the apple, as the serpent murmurs, more to herself than to Eve. 
I should know. Now I'm happy to be joined by Hey Mulholland, author of Distant Heavens. Congratulations on winning first prize, Hey, and welcome to Red Wheelbarrow, the podcast. Thank you. One of the things I enjoy in this poem um, is Eve remembering Lilith. What inspired this poem and what inspired that part of the poem? Um, I grew up uh, going to Christian schools and private schools um, all throughout elementary and middle school. Um, And although I'm not like religious now, um, I have such like a love and passion for stories from other religions and mythologies. Um, I've also always been interested in Lilith as like, a person and her whole story. Um, The fact that she had been kind of replaced in a way um, by Eve. Um, Both Eve and Lilith's stories have been really intriguing to me um, while I was growing up. Another thing I admire about the poem uh, is the guts that it must have taken to re-dramatize the familiar scene between Eve and the serpent and uh, to make it fresh, which which you really do. Um, Was that daunting? Uh, It was a little. yeah, I've seen so many adaptations of it. It's been done so many times. Um, and trying to come up with something like new and interesting in a way uh, was a little difficult. But uh, really one of my favorite things to do when reading about old stories and myths and legends and stuff is to try and put humanity into them. Um, like I just love to brainstorm how these characters and people may have actually felt during the events. Um, Uh, I really wanted to explore why Eve might have eaten the fruit, why she would have wanted to, like, seek more from a place that was described as perfect. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't really get to explain it herself in the Bible, does she? No, yeah. And that's always been, like, something I've been really drawn to uh, imagining, Mm -hmm. I guess. When did you begin writing poetry? Um, I began in high school. Um think about like junior year maybe um and I I had too much like teenage angst to like let it out somehow um but it really wasn't until uh this year when I was in my uh writing poetry class uh here at CCAD that I really uh had the terminology and was able to hone it more um and it helped me discover like how passionate I was about writing poetry I really didn't like discover that until like months ago. Hmm, Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Cause the poem is so assured in its writing. Uh, It's, it's, that's wonderful. So you are a comics and narrative practice major. Um, As an artist, what do you find appealing about writing poetry? Uh, I think art and writing are so like intricately tied together. Uh, I feel like they both capture like what we as humanity what we feel and how we feel about life, uh, just really in different forms, I think. Um, I'm also a creative writing minor, and uh, especially for comics, writing is such a giant part of my art and poetry, uh, to me, feels so connected to the emotions I want to be able to tell um, in my comics and stories. Uh, I want people to like read my comics and read my writing and feel like they have been seen or feel touched somehow. Well, great. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 
Our poetry judge describes this next work as a poem that rewards rereading, which is one of those things every writer loves to hear, trust me. The poet is Annalise Barber, a junior illustration major with a minor in creative writing, and her poem, which won second place in this year's contest, is titled Mixed. Hear it now for the first time and reward yourself with a second listen. Hello, my name is Annalise Barber, and today I will be reading my poem titled Mixed. Mom's eyes milken with unknowing as she guts the innards of apples into the resemblance of pie, unapologetically explaining lovemaking and mourning a marriage never made loving. Nutmeg, cinnamon, clove blend within pie flesh. Flavors are placed before baking so they can mix. Do the kids at school call you Oreo? Injects the well-intentioned woman at the pony keg while I wait in line for Skittles. This was mom's place when she was my age. They do not sell Oreos here. In fourth grade, I piecemeal a picture of Barack Obama and John McCain. Both were campaigning under a landscape of crayon. Aren't you going to kiss me? Mom asks, but really pleads. Divorced by the partition of Dad's car window, he grimaces under an audience of two children. He fills her mouth with obligation and plans for somewhere else. In standardized testing, the reader informs me to bubble according to who I am. I scan both pages, yet there is no sphere for duality. Our first black president, a merge of Kenya and Kansas, could it be true that I am not an anomaly. Trayvon Martin, executed by an overambitious amateur, his last possessions, iced tea and Skittles. Snow Day, I go to Heather's house. When our hands collage, we imitate the diversity poster from school. Brown and peach, and brown and peach, she notifies to mix the Skittles you crush them between unforgiving fingers and tell them to be one. In science class, we are mixtures seemingly homogenous. Life evaporates from our disillusioned ingredients until we become remnants of something that was. Martin Luther King Jr. Dreamt of my brother and I, the intertwining of hues. I'm grateful to exist. Dad envelops us in museums in celebration of MLK. Mom is not invited. When anxious, I vacuum my apartment and welcome the white noise, the dust ghosts of skin spiral into a tornado of race, the hoover then placed behind the stove, and all of the stolen colors die into gray. 
On Thanksgiving, we consume the so-called pie. This is the last holiday that we celebrate before Dad dwells in the unbecoming stereotype of black fatherhood. Nutmeg, cinnamon, clove, blossom into a child of otherness and slit into halves. She is consumed. You're listening to Red Wheelbarrow, the podcast, part of CCAD's year-end celebration of student art and design, Chroma. You just heard Annalise Barber reading Mixed, and before her, Hamal Holland reading Distant Heavens. For each genre in our Creative Writing Awards, the first place winner receives a cash prize and publication in the upcoming print issue of our literary magazine, Botticelli, while the runner-up receives a cash prize and possible publication in a future issue. And now... On to chapter two. Christopher Koch, our judge for the prose category, writes this about the winning entry, Just a Passing Place. In careful, spare language, the author tells a gut-wrenching story about parental neglect that contains anger, but also a kind of grim understanding for the forces that make children like their parents. The author of that story, Jenna Ronto, is a first-year comics and narrative practice major. That's right, I said first year, as in not even yet a sophomore. Here's Jenna reading an excerpt from Just a Passing Place. My name is Jenna Ronto, and this is an excerpt from Just a Passing Place. It all started when people at school pointed out how much I looked like my mom. I watched her steal cigarettes from the supermarket at the end of her block. I watched her get drunk Thursday at night and fall asleep in front of the TV. I saw the empty fridge every night. I can still feel her hands on my face. I didn't want to be like her. I made friends with a girl down the street. I instantly liked her because of her dip-dyed pink hair and muddy rainbow leggings. When we were together, we would hide out at the abandoned house we found in the neighborhood, but we always went back to her house for dinner. This happened every week, and every week she told me to bring something that reminded me of my mom. It started with a pack of my mom's cigarettes. Every week, we would go to the convenience store down the street. I would talk to the cashier about the comic book my mom managed to borrow from the comic book shop for me that week as a thank you gift for the cigarettes I stole for her. My mom pointed out the ones she wanted. She would put the money on the table. It was my job to take the money away before the cashier would notice. As I talked about the comic book of the week, while inching my hand towards the wadded up cash, my mom would stick her camo lights in her pocket and just walk out. The girl down the street and I went outside with her grandpa's matches and burned the pack. I remember the burst of flames, then the strong smell of cigarettes. I burned a lot of things that summer. Stolen shirts, beer cans, past due bills, 
and the first comic book my mom ever stole from me. I shut my eyes tight and let the book fly to the flames. I memorized every word and every image of that book, but it still hurt to see the pages disappear forever. I couldn't help but hurt for my mom at that moment. After, after the flames died down, I felt arms wrap around me. The girl would whisper in my ear, you're nothing like her. If you stick with me, you'll stay that way. She pulled away and smiled at me. After the fire, we walked back to her house for dinner. We kicked our shoes off at the door and shed our jackets on the floor. Her mom was always close by and ready to pick up our smoky jackets, somehow predicting when we would get home those nights. She gave a hug to her daughter and peered her head over at me. The usual, of course, I said every time. Butter noodles and garlic powder would be my meals that summer. Her mom would be in the kitchen while we were in the other room watching a cartoon. I heard I would hear her shuffling around trying to make her meals as fast as she could. I always offered my help since I was used to making my own meals, but she would shoo me away to finish the episode we were on. I knew she would never let me help, but I would go anyway just to talk to her. The cartoon was never paused, so I always missed the ending. And now we're joined by Jenna Ronto. Jenna, welcome to the show. Congratulations on winning first place in the prose uh, category. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your writing style is, as our judge Christopher Koch said, careful and spare. Would you say that's a common style in your writing, or is it more of a reflection of the story's narrator? Well, the story is definitely one of my personal, more personal stories. So I chose to write a more like sparing and careful um, style to the story. And I wanted to put emphasis on the emotions behind the story and the narrator. So yeah, I've never really written in this style and it's new to me, but I'd like to write more in this style. Can you tell us a little bit more about what inspired the story? Um, so this story is for the most part purely fiction, but some of the aspects are inspired um, by some of my like real life experiences. For example, like the girl, um, the girl down the street is inspired by a friend that I had in middle school uh, that lived down the street from me. And then her mom is also uh, the, the mom of the girl from down the street is inspired by her mom. And um, yeah, she helped me like learn how to be my own person. And but the way she helped me were a little questionable. And the mom of the main character um, is definitely um not inspired by my mom she but um uh, growing up i just wanted to be my own person and my mom me and my mom were like very close and very like similar so yeah i just wanted to say um the, the actual events in the story are all fiction um but the through this story i wanted to portray some of the feelings i had growing up and be, trying to become my own person hmm. so when did um when did you begin writing stories um, I'd probably say in middle school, uh, I started out with poetry and then eventually I started writing stories that were more like personal to me and nothing that I would like share with anybody. And then like in high school, I started writing, uh, more stories that I would share with people for some of my writing classes. So. And you are a comics and narrative practice major. 
Um, has writing short stories influenced your comics at all? I know you are a freshman, so you're just sort of getting into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually just switched over from animation to comics, so I've only created like a handful of um, comics. But I mean, typically, I, I would say to some extent they um, influence my work. I usually like write down, write out like the story of for the comic of how I, where I want it to go, and then. But sometimes I just write out bullet points. So I would say I wanted I wanted to make more influence on my comics, but as of right now, not too much. Thanks so much for uh, for reading and for uh, joining me here on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hi. My name is Seven Burry. I'm an illustration senior and creative writing minor. This is Ruth. Upon the first daybreak of my birth, my grandmother barreled through a neon archway. Her voice, the boom of a crowded nightclub, fell silent at the stroke of the eleventh hour. The curls that dangled just below her hoops shined with gin and juniper oil staining my skin with whiskey bourbon. Perhaps it was the pungent kiss of London spirit that sent a tear crawling out from beneath my father's glasses, although he never spoke of it. I'm sure it stung, another moment tucked into folds of slurred talk, forgotten with no ticket home. This is Thin Walls. The night is a bleak, wet dog. Each night bleak, simple, something cheap from the bodega. Your liquor-laced lips blundering, word after stumbled word, a toddler's first steps. My heart breaks for you, a child, grief-spilled custard. It is the undying urge to send me down a river sticks, an urge only with you. That was one of our outstanding graduating seniors, Seven Burry, reading their poems Ruth and Thin Walls. Seven is an illustration major with a creative writing minor. Our next short story comes from a young writer who won not one, but two of the awards this year. Amber Struble is a junior in the animation program, and her story, Much Needed Break, took second place in the prose category. Our judge describes this story as snappily and inventively told from the perspective of a woman stagnating into rage. Here's Amber. Hello, my name is Amber, and I am reading a piece of my prose piece entitled Much Needed Break. It occurred to her that the song she could barely make out was one from the playlist she'd been listening to that morning. She couldn't remember the name or the artist or half the words, just the song. That was the first coherent thought that came to her since they'd set foot in the bar. The rest was just a haze. Dimitri hadn't said much, or if he had, she'd forgotten by now. He took refuge in his phone again, to avoid dealing with her shit, as per the usual. Why the hell are we even here, then? Here, in her mind, meant the bar. The seats beside each other at the bar at this point in time, tonight but not entirely. Here. Why are we here? Why are we still doing this thing? 
not just moving on, moving forward, just staying stuck here. He tapped at his phone. Tap. Tap. Why are you still here? Tap. Why am I still here? I want to break something. She traced the rim of her glass rather than drinking it, stared at that Kohler-colored liquid within. Her finger only just pressed into the glass, slightly, as it circled, slowly, steadily, teetered, almost over the edge, but not quite. I want to break something. I want to break something. I want to break something. Anna? The circle stopped. What's wrong? Nothing. If you didn't want to go out, tap, 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 I'm fine. If you didn't want to go out, then you should have said something. Her finger tapped the rim of the glass. It made the ice quake ever so slightly inside. I'm fine, she repeated. The song playing in the bar had changed without her noticing, to one she didn't know, or care for. It was loud, not in volume, just busy. She set her free hand on the surface of the bar, scratching a nail into it without force. The other continued to tap at the same speed. Something clunked on the bar beside her, but just once, and subtly. It made her peer over. Dimitri had put down his phone in favor of his drink, a white Russian. Bastard didn't even like the taste, just the irony of the name. That alone probably gave him more satisfaction. The corner of her mouth twitched upwards. Idiot. So what did I do this time, he asked without looking at her. To piss you off. Hmm? Dimitri nudged the bar stool with the tip of his shoe. This? Anna turned now. What? He turned too, half facing her from his seat. As if to prove a point, he moved his leg to wrap it around one of the legs of, the, of her bar stool. You do this, when we're out. I do? His teeth glinted as he chuckled. Yes. He removed his leg from the chair. How are there women supposed to know I'm off limits now? I could get whisked away, you know. If only I was so lucky. The taunt never made it to her lips. It just wasn't worth it. She shrugged and returned to tapping her glass. On the bar, Dimitri's phone buzzed, and she waited for him to pick it up. You've been submitting resumes, you said? Mm-hmm. Have you heard back from anywhere? His phone buzzed. A couple. Are you interested in them? She shrugged. Then why would you apply in the first place? His phone buzzed. She shrugged. There's no point in committing yourself to something if you're not going to at least be able to tolerate it. There's jobs out there, Anna. Tap, tap, tap. His phone buzzed again. I want to break something. Anna, shut up, shut up. Stop talking to me. Just stop it. You're not helping, so just stop. Tap, 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 tap. Anna, stop it, stop it, stop, stop. Tap, 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 tap. There was a pressure on her free hand. A gentle one, warm, his hand, a finger that began to trace circles. Anechka. It was barely voiced, coming out as a breath. There wasn't accusation in it, or impatience, or pity, or anything. It just was. Anechka. He repeated it in the same manner, continuing to trace circles into the back of her hand. Talk with me. Her hand on the glass twitched. Something in her stomach clenched. We are talking. Not at me. His hand moved to cover more of hers. With me. It's the same. Her voice faded as something came loose inside her. He, she shut her mouth and stared to the wall behind the bar. It's the same thing. It's not, he answered. 
Her throat was tight. She swallowed. Or tried to. The circles were wearing down her resolve. What's wrong? I want to break something. You what? Tap, tap, tap. The glass was tipped over onto the bar. Loudly. That was Amber Struble reading from her story, Much Needed Break. I mentioned that Amber won two prizes. Remember that? Her screenplay, Scream Park, placed first in the screenwriting category. We'll hear from Amber again a little bit later in the program. You're listening to Red Wheelbarrow, the podcast, part of CCAD's year-end celebration of student art and design, Chroma. We'd like to thank Bob Redfield and Mary Urena for their generous contributions to support Red Wheelbarrow and our Creative Writing Awards series. If you'd like to support the success and creativity of our students, visit ccad.edu forward slash giving. What do I love about my job? Not only do I get to work with brilliant students, but I get to be pals with talented colleagues like our next guest, Professor Sophia Cartsonis. Sophia is the faculty editor of Botticelli, which is published through a course called Literary Publishing, and she's also an accomplished writer of prose and poetry. Her books include Intaglio, winner of the Wick Poetry Prize, and The Rub. The new issue of Botticelli is published this spring and will be available in print format in the fall. We'll hear from Sophia next in Chapter 3. And now we're joined by Sophia Carsonis, professor of writing literature and philosophy and editor of Botticelli. Hi, Sophia. Hi, Robert. How are you doing? I know. I'm never better. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, let's get to the questions. Um, First of all, what can we expect in this new issue of Botticelli? Well... Uh, I'm obviously a fan, so um, and I'm kind of a chronic repeat fan in that um, I'm almost embarrassingly enthusiastic on the day that we get to all see the art that was selected. So um, we can expect a typical vibrancy, but um, because there is something more that was kind of unavoidable, I think maybe an urgency. Is it possible that uh, we wouldn't? There's something of what it meant to assemble it during a pandemic. I don't mm-hmm. think it can but be a little bit more urgent and vibrant just because we, we had to find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell us how a typical issue of Botticelli comes together? Sure. It's a series of teams or committees. Uh, it's four of them. Uh, a couple of them are have, you know, the, the flash. So uh, literary committee, um, art and photography, social media events, which is one committee, and then the layout and design group. And they basically solicit work or plan events, and then those groups come together as a whole class to make big decisions or make, you know, vote for things like cover art, uh, the types and dates of events, the placement of art alongside literary selection the way those might magnetize or oppose one another in intriguing ways. Uh, those kinds of things are 
think, more fun in a larger group conversation. So. And and how has that been a little different this year? How has that process been different this year? Well, this semester it's been really different um, mm-hmm. because everything I described is, you know, it's group work and sure Zoom can accomplish that. Hangouts can accomplish it. But a lot of it is sort of, um, I don't know, there's an emotional tone to choosing these things and this sensitivity. And I don't know, I think there's a kind of vibe in the room. And so... Um, some of, you know, obviously the challenges you can imagine you're dealing with them yourself. Um, I think the thing that I didn't expect is that there's this real intimacy and warmth to our remote meetings and our chats. Uh, I saw it with our colleagues and, you know, how the first time we saw each other's faces on screen, mm-hmm. it was kind of a sadness, but there's also something really beautiful about, you know, oh, I really value these people even more than I thought. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know, there was, there was, there's been more on the line and um, so much of what's been a part of that has been what's been wholly unknown and then, you know, that we're kind of all coming together to find a way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Somehow, some way, I think this podcast <laughs> will be an example of that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, so um, what do you think it is about creative writing and also, you know, editing it and putting together Botticelli that CCAD students, that our students, you know, find find so appealing? I think it's that uh, I've said this so many times about art students when I'm asked what it's like to teach them something that isn't always what they came to our school to learn primarily. It's that they are uh, already skew cliche. They don't need to be told to get weirder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love them for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the creative writing and art students, I think, go really well together because we don't have to teach that something needs to be fresh to be um, to be more affecting um, more intriguing um, as far as the class itself it's kind of funny because I think that it's both the most uh, unusual class for some students in a very good way and then I think for some it can be frustrating because it's easily one of the most autonomous classes that they will take I deliberately set out for it to feel like they are running a professional magazine and there is not so much um, a, an editor with me or a teacher, but um, I call myself a faculty advisor. Mm-hmm. So I just facilitate where I'm needed. I'm consulted, but only when I'm really needed. I literally hand over every step of the the, the process to them. Um. Let's let's add, let me ask the uh, William William Carlos Williams question. <laughs> so, do you do you have a favorite William Carlos Williams poem? Well, I like his spare lines, and I like the way um, his poem, "A Great the Great Figure," um, he manages in such a, a very um, I don't know, skinny poem, few words, uh, not my gift, obviously, I'm Greek, um, <laughs> to capture, like, the excitement of a fire engine. It's all there. Um, but, you know, I have to say, for the purpose of the interview, the Botticellian trees, um, mm-hmm. you can do worse than, you know, yeah. cite the alphabet of trees or the straight branches and pinched gifts of color, etc. 
Great. Um, and then, you know, do you have anything you want to share with the students? Anything you want to say to them? Yes. Um, I hate this whole season of sickness. Mm. I have been wishing for them a true spring. Um, those faces and voices in the classroom are completely irreplaceable. Um, I'm really sorry not to have the live commencement. They deserve it and they earned it. Um, but I wanted to say that uh, I will speak to them directly. You rose to the occasion. Um, I've told them many times, you already know that art rises first. And so we've had a season of ha having to do a lot of stumbling, some falling down. Um, but with a murky moment, um, I still believe the imagination has been able to give us a vision of what's possible again. And I think that's really, really true of what comes next for um, for you, for all of us. And just because we're on cell phone, I just want to make sure I was, that it was clear what you said. You said art rises first? Yes. I think the imagination is always what we use to build something. And that's true, I think, if you're an artist or a writer or a carpenter or uh, a pandemic plan or um, whatever. I think the imagination is, is what kind of is, is the what is it, the first responder. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Sophia, it was so good talking to you. I miss seeing your face. I miss seeing I you. I miss you. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you. And now I'm happy to introduce one of the co-editors of Botticelli, CCAD graduating senior Elena Workley. Elena is a major in fine arts and also a creative writing minor. She'll be reading, Suppose My Name Was Your Neighbor. Hi, I'm Elena Workley and this is my piece called Suppose My Name Was Your Neighbor. Helena was a girl who lived up the street from where my mother grew up. I was supposed to carry on her name for my mother and for other reasons unbeknownst to me. My father changed it unbeknownst to her. I was handed to her named after someone she'd never known. I've never known someone named exactly like me with each vowel planted specifically between each consonant a specifically arranged order of letters that made no specific sense. Rather, if named Helena, would that namesake help make specific sense of this life? Answerless, a namesake-less girl has to figure it out for herself. A girl who always looked to reign as a cleansing occurrence and figured it was natural and rhythmic of her own na name and nature. Her name meaning shining light, probably when warming the grass of some French countryside, but in a dim cafe, her natural light only meant casting through clouds saturated with coffee-stained air, while spelling E-L-A-I-N-A, -A, and murmuring, it doesn't matter, and getting replies of, oh, that's pretty. A conversation during and after which no replies ever made much sense. It doesn't matter. N-O-N-A-M-E. Oh, that's pretty, because 
isn't something you've truly never heard before the most beautiful thing to hit your ears at that moment? I hope the next name said to you in an echo of Oz and L's does so without a burden of history and sadness. The first time you hear it, let it roll into your ears, down your throat, and let it grow in your stomach. With my name in your stomach, you'll grow nourished from it, grow more familiar to the unknown, slowly becoming so familiar, like friends, it'll be like it grew up the street from you. That was Elena Workley reading Suppose My Name Was Your Neighbor. You're listening to Red Wheelbarrow, the podcast. Now I'd like to share a message and a reading from Professor Leslie Jenicky. Leslie also teaches in the writing literature and philosophy department here at CCAD, and she's the author of the poetry collections Ghost of Fashion, Holy Island, and Punctum. Hey, everyone. It's Leslie here. I wanted to... Um share a poem with you by a friend of mine, um, Cynthia R.U. King, who is uh, really terrific, and her newest book is called Futureless Languages, Um, and this is a a poem I I really like, um, and it made me think of y'all because it's it's about students, um, and it's about dealing with sadness, um, and hopefully making something of this painful time that we're all um, dealing with. And if anybody can do it, it's the students, it's the artists. Um, and I think that's what, what Cindy is uh, trying to describe here. And the poem is called Outsider Art. And when I am completely outside this, and we're all dead, spread out against the craterless green hills, Piled bones some future hero sets a foot on to discuss the peat, or falling into charnel houses within the insurrection. There will reverberate a moment when my lover asked me why I always go inside my mind, go somewhere instead of looking at him and saying what I'm thinking. The axes on the first try, how the laundry piles up, the papers forming shacks. Didn't I have a right to the murmurs, puppeteers in black who pulled paper from their heads and handed sheets to each other, notes instead of speaking? This dream came true, mostly. Wars of hatred, spitting into the faces of those taken away, the tiresome abrogation of areas where no one will achieve, a tiny whisper. And I have to say, excuse me, I can't hear you. Everyone can hear me in the back row of class if I am shouting. They shake their heads. You aren't shouting. And they who seem barely arrived from between their mother's legs, beneath the shampoo of whatever 15th app stands outside the poem while the poem circles their directly beating hearts. It draws X's over their eyes. And I am already sand. I said to them, What confirms the pattern? And they said there should be a national holiday where every person goes out into a field or a cave alone to think. 
That was my colleague, Professor Leslie Jenicky, reading a poem by Cynthia R.U. King called Outsider Art. And now, turn the page to our final chapter. Scream Park, written by Amber Struble, is the first place entry in the screenwriting competition. Amber is a junior in animation. Our judge for this category, Paige Webb, writes that Scream Park vividly captures the world of a rundown theme park with a murderous past, balancing dynamic tone, thrilling to comedic, with lovable, quirky characters in the trenches of the all too relatable, tedious summer job. Just in time for summer, here, once again, is Amber Struble. Hello, my name is Amber, and I am reading a scene from my script called Scream Park. Interior, Pine Valley Park, Space Arcade, day. In the break room, Kendall is splitting a pizza with Mikey. At their table is Felicia, 26, who sits on her phone with the resting bitch face. She has long nails and both arms are decorated with bracelets. Her phone buzzes and she gets a message and she makes a sound. Mmm, Dan's gonna be pissed. Why, is Ruth trying to, <laughs> trying to get friendly with customers again? Adelaide's cracking down on him. Someone tipped her off. I swear to God, it is Patton doing it. I mean, think about it. He's not in on it like the rest of us, right? He's a fucking narc, I swear. If he was a narc, I'd know. How would you know? I'd just know. Fucking Patton, man. I'd put money on it. He thinks about it. We're Scott. Felicia groans at the name. Preach. She points at Kendall. Hun, don't you go talking to anyone you hear us bitching about, okay? Don't go taking nothing Dan tries to give you. Oh, sure, like he'd be that generous. And you can tell Scott to fuck off if he ever tries to talk to you. If he doesn't listen, then you come and get me, and I'll kick his ass. Hear me? Kendall nods attentively, like she's being granted the secrets of the universe. Who's the girl that works at the, um, the fish game, sometimes? I don't know what she looked like. Um, she has black hair, and it's, it's short. Oh, it's Ruth. Yeah. Uh, she, she told me that she has to get stuff that's packed in the old water park. Mikey interrupts her. Yes! Motherfucking heroes, water world boy! The good old body farm. Felicia groans, having heard this before. Oh, shut up. There's no bodies there. Uh, <laughs> wrong? He pushes back from the table to perch his elbows on his knees, gesturing like a passionate speaker. Think about it. They filled up those pools with concrete way too fast. You know why people would do that? He taps the side of his head. To hide bodies. Or maybe because it's their job and they want to be out of there. Yeah, yeah. That's what they want you to think. Felicia shakes her head at this, but Kendall is far more interested. I heard about that. Um, about the kids that went missing so long ago. Wouldn't be a shitty run-down town without our own serial killer, right? Half of them probably just ran away. What, you wouldn't? I mean, fair, but it all went down like 20 or 30 years ago. 
back when people let their kids run around like idiots and didn't have cell phones. Besides, if serial killer shit was happening, it's gone and done by now. Mikey pouts his more entertaining theories disabled by her logic. Felicia returns to her phone. Mom, maybe he's just really old or something. I don't know. Sure. And we are now joined by Amber Struble, author and performer of Scream Park. Hi, Amber. Hi. So Scream Park is about Kendall, a 15-year-old girl who gets a summer job at a derelict amusement park. First question, is this actually a memoir disguised as a fictional screenplay? No, it is not. That would be awesome, though. I would love to work at a derelict uh, theme park. What was the inspiration for the screenplay? Uh, I think mostly... um, it was kind of twofold. Uh, I played this video game called The Park, which was largely really story driven. And it was uh, following this mother who was um, looking for her lost son in the theme park while going through all of her psychological junk she had going on. And mm-hmm. uh, so that kind of planted the seed. And then I looked around at just like kind of characters and character ideas I had that didn't really belong anywhere. So I kind of just smashed the two together and went, all right. Play nice, guys. Let's see what happens. And everything kind of just came from that. One of the things that leaps out from this uh, the script is your ability to quickly define memorable characters. How did you create such a vivid cast? Um, usually kind of the way I help flesh out characters whenever I'm doing stuff is uh, – Because, like, before I got into kind of a love of writing, I was in theater before that, um, just when I was younger and then up to now. And kind of one of the things I do is just try to get in the headspace of those characters. And sometimes the simplest way to do that is um, just to give them a distinct voice, whether it be kind of um, starting off with, like, an initial kind of maybe kind of like a stereotype or like a character you've seen elsewhere or um, thinking about like friends and family I have and kind of taking elements of them and kind of peppering it in. So once I have that kind of voice going things, um, they kind of just build up off of that, whether it be um, they make me think like, oh, I could do this or, oh, maybe the way they act like this is because of this thing or just accidental discoveries like, oh, yeah, okay. Guess we'll go with that then. Yeah, it's interesting to hear um, your theatrical background also play into the performance that you did. Uh, that was fan- that was fantastic. You are an animation major, that's correct. Mm-hmm. When you were writing Screen Park, did you envision it as an animated film or as a live action film? Uh, in my mind, I think I envisioned it as animated, just because that's. Um, most of the media that I consume is animated and that's what I'm going to school for. So it's kind of like, that's the default now. Yeah. It's a great premise. And I I really think it could be the the premise of a series. Um, So the screenplay you submitted is about 30 pages long uh, per our contest guidelines. Have you, have you written more of it and what are your plans for this project? I have written more of it because it was something I was working on for one of the classes I was taking. Uh, The goal of that was supposed to be to get a 90-page script that was finished, story over and done with. What I turned in was a 96-page script that made it to the third act. 
So obviously I kind of rambled on a little bit in it. And um, I think now that I look at it, um, I think it could work well as some sort of mini series because I could keep that length and even like add a little bit more to it. Cause just like one of the things I don't want to sacrifice when I'm writing is that character development and those little character moments um, of building up relationships between them. So that was primarily what most of the bulk of the screenplay was. So if I kind of went towards like the mini series route, I could definitely have that like throughout. That's great. Yeah, that's great. That's great thinking. Well, Hey, Thank you so much for joining us here on the Red Wheelbarrow podcast. You have a great summer and we'll see you in the fall. All right. Cool. You too. You've been listening to Red Wheelbarrow, the podcast. So before we turn to the epilogue of our program, I'd like to thank the judges of this year's Creative Writing Awards. Jen Town is the author of The Light of What Comes After, which won the 2017 May Sarton Poetry Prize from Bauhan Publishing. Christopher Koch is an associate professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno, where he directs the MFA program in creative writing. His new short story collection, You Would Have Told Me Not To, will be published in the summer of 2020. And finally, Paige Webb, our screenwriting judge, is the author of Tussle from Dancing Girl Press. She's also the administrative director of Ashland University's MFA in Creative Writing Program and co-curates the reading series Paging Columbus at $2 Radio Headquarters. I want to again thank all of the students who shared their work on the podcast, Hey Mulholland, Annalise Barber, Jenna Ronto, Seven Burry, Amber Struble, and Elena Workley. I also want to thank my colleagues, Sophia Cartsonius and Leslie Jenicky. Uh, we recorded everything that you've heard using cell phones, video conferencing software, and digital recorders. Not the ideal scenario, but as Sophia said, everyone rose to the occasion. That's what artists and writers do. And now, the epilogue. The Red Wheelbarrow Reading Series was founded at CCAD by Associate Professor Joshua Butts. Josh was my predecessor as the Department Head of Writing, Literature, and Philosophy, and this summer he'll be taking the position of CCAD's Dean of Faculty. Josh is a terrific poet, author of the collection New to the Lost Coast. None of what you've heard today would have been possible without Josh, so I thought it would be fitting that he close us out with a reprise of William Carlos Williams' the red wheelbarrow. Josh, take us home. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. <laughs>